Hello and welcome to the Media Law Podcast Newscast with me, Colette Allen. Today I'm with Tom and we are going to be discussing all things defamation. On Monday the 2nd of November, His Honour Justice Nichols delivered one of the most anticipated defamation judgments in years, Depp and the Sun newspaper and its executive editor, Dan Wooten. The claim related to articles published in April 2018 that headlined, How can J.K. Rowling be genuinely happy casting wife-beater Johnny Depp in the new Fantastic Beasts film? The natural and ordinary meaning of the words complained of were accepted by the parties to be that Mr. Depp beat Miss Heard, causing her to suffer a significant injury and on occasion leading to her fearing for her life. The defendants principally relied on the defence of truth as set out in Section 2 of the Defamation Act 2013. This was a risky strategy for the Sun, as a defence of truth, if unsuccessful, is liable to substantially inflated damages. The trial saw 14 days of evidence, including testimony from Depp's ex-wife, Amber Heard, for the Sun. From this evidence, the judge concluded that, while not all allegations of violence by Mr Depp towards Miss Heard were proven, the defendant had established, to the civil standard, that the words complained of in their natural and ordinary meaning were substantially true. Tom, you've read the judgment. Anything that jumps out at you? Yes, well, first of all, it's massive. I mean, that's the most glaring thing about the judgment. It's 130 pages, best part of 600 paragraphs. And almost all of it is devoted to dealing with the facts of the case and the evidence establishing those facts. There's relatively little discussion of the law itself. This is not a case that affects any change to the law of defamation or any novel interpretation of the Defamation Act. Um, But it is nevertheless uh, a landmark for a couple of reasons. First, because it is obviously a case that's very high profile. And second, because it is the first really major case that we've had on this new truth defence since the Defamation Act Uh, introduced it, replacing the old common law defence of justification, though, of course, in practice, um, the two defences are virtually identical. Um, So, yeah, it's a a major judgment. It is, uh, I think, by a distance, the most detailed judgment I've seen on truth since the case of Irving and Penguin Books, where uh, David Irving sued Penguin Books for Uh, over allegations that he was a a Holocaust denier and lost uh, back in the 1990s um, when uh, the defense of justification, as it then was, uh, was uh, successful in that case. And I think that this is is on a par with that, frankly. It's, um, for Depp, it's a devastating judgment. It's devastating in the level of detail that comes out about the violence that he perpetrated uh, against uh, Amber Heard. Uh, and I think it's safe to say that, that his reputation uh, now lies absolutely in ruins uh, as a result of it. Because of that, how much precedent do you think it actually sets then? I mean, this is a very fact-specific case, you know, very high-profile people involved, does the detail that uh, Justice Nichols goes into it for Section 2 actually set anything for you know litigants going forward? Well, as a matter of law, no, it doesn't. Um, the, the, the law is contained in Section 2, and that is an end of it. 
Um, but it sets a different kind of precedent in a, in, in a more practical sense in that uh, it shows celebrity claimants um, who might not be terribly familiar with the, the, the detailed workings of English libel law and might look at it and say, oh, well, England is known to be a libel-friendly, a claimant-friendly jurisdiction. I'll bring my claim there. It shows them uh, that if they bring a libel claim, it will be subject to forensic examination. Um, and uh, I, I can only, from reading through the case, I can only conclude that at some level, Johnny Depp did not expect the court to examine the evidence as closely as it did, because this is not a case that he lost, you know, by the odd goal. This is a case where there were 14 specific allegations of incidents uh, where Depp had uh, uh, assaulted Hurd, uh, uh, according to uh, the defendant. And the court found that on 12 of those occasions, the allegations were proved true to the civil standard. So 12 out of 14 incidents. The other two were not ruled out. Simply the evidence wasn't there uh, to prove that they definitely happened. Um, so... I think it sends that kind of message. Um, the other way in which I think the case is, is, is useful is as a teaching aid, because, as I say, it's been a while since we've had a, a really detailed judgment on, on a truth-type defence. Um, and so this now becomes a really good example of, uh, A, how the courts approach the determination of truth, in terms of working through allegations one after another uh, and subjecting them to detailed analysis, and uh, and B, how the courts use their findings on one allegation to inform the findings on subsequent allegations. Um, what happened in this case was that in as, as the judge went through chronologically the different incidents of alleged assault, finding them one after another to be proven in most cases, uh, the judge clearly came to a view as to patterns in Depp's behaviour. And the patterns essentially were that uh, when Depp was depressed about something, and I don't necessarily mean clinically depressed, but when he was feeling down about something, he would drink heavily, he would take drugs, and when he drank heavily and took drugs, he was prone to violence. And having found that to be the case over the first few allegations, the judge then used that finding uh, as a finding of fact to inform the likelihood of what happened in subsequent allegations. So the judge says, you know, back in 2013, 2014, 2015, Depp drinks heavily, Depp takes drugs, Depp becomes violent. When he's looking at incidents later on, 2016 and so forth, so a few years later, he's looking at the incidents and he says, well, because the evidence shows that Depp drank and took drugs, it is more likely that he then turned violent. 
Um, and I think that that is uh, that that is the right way to understand uh, how the defence of truth uh, operates. Um, but it's something that I think perhaps maybe students who are new to this field, people who are not intricately familiar with uh, defamation law, might be surprised at. Um, the other thing that I think they might be surprised at, um, but again, anyone who who uh, studied this field or practiced in the field, of course, is very familiar with, is the idea that not all the allegations have to be proven true for the defence to work. Um, this is a long-standing rule. It has been around in defamation law for, uh, when was it first introduced back in the uh, mid-20th century? It's been a long time. Um, the, the notion that if there are multiple allegations and some of them can be proven true, then so long as the ones that cannot be proven true don't make the damage to the to uh, the claimant's reputation any worse, considering the ones that have been proved true, the defence still succeeds. And that's why the defence succeeded in respect of the entirety of the claim, even though two of the incidents couldn't be proven. Because having proven 12 of the 14 incidents, the court was convinced that Depp did beat his wife, that's enough to prove he's a wife beater. And that on, I think it was two of the occasions, at least he had caused her to fear for her life. Well, that showed that he did on occasion cause her to fear for her life. And at that point, the fact that there are two incidents that cannot be proven true don't make Depp any less of a wife beater. Um, right. And that's why... That's why the defence succeeds in respect of all of them. Now, as I say, that's a well-established principle in defamation law, but there may be uh, listeners who, if they haven't studied it, wouldn't necessarily uh, think that to be the case. So it doesn't set a legal precedent in that way, but it is, as I say, a, a useful example, and it will become, in short order, a very useful teaching aid in order to demonstrate a number of basic principles about how the truth defence works. One precedent I thought um, was interesting to come out of it, though, was the language around domestic abuse victims. And Mark Stevens has been commenting on this in The Guardian in relation to this trial, where he welcomed the fact that the attempts to undermine Heard's accounts as portraying her as you know, a hoaxer and a gold digger had failed. And he noted that had these gender tropes been successful, they would have been replicated. But the fact that they've been picked apart so forensically in these circumstances by this court reveals how silencing tactics work in situations of domestic abuse, which will make it very difficult for counsel to rely on these same arguments in the future. And, you know, in terms of domestic abuse, that's a, a great precedent for this to have set. Well, I agree with you. Um, I, I, I think what Mr. Justice Nicholl has done here is uh, a, an absolutely outstanding job of putting together a very complicated chronology of events um, uh, and a judgment that is, there is no better word than forensic in its level uh, of detail. Um, it, it takes seriously the allegations, it takes seriously um, what Amber Heard has had to say and what her lived experience of her relationship with Depp uh, has been. 
And so, uh, yes, I think you're you're right that it will it will send that message as a judgment, um, and it might well have an impact on the way that council conduct uh, conduct cases. Um, but it is a, a testimony to the work of uh, the judge and to the great attention that uh, Mr. Justice Nickel has paid to the context in which all of these incidents occurred. I was really struck by the, the methodology he set out early on in the judgment and which he followed when he said, first, I'm going to look at each individual incident in turn. And he does that. And it takes hundreds of paragraphs to do it. And he says, and once I've done that, I'm then going to go back and I'm going to look at the big picture to see whether the, the big picture that, that is painted by all of these incidents uh, supports claimant or defendant. So he's attentive to the context of what's going on, both at a micro and a macro level, which uh, I think is absolutely the right way to proceed. I think it's something that maybe judges do it more often than we give them credit for, but I, I think they quite often don't do so expressly and here we can really see that attentiveness to context which i think is impressive do you think there's any danger that um this is going to serve as an indication for the tabloid press so the sun has obviously done very well in this victory and i fear that there might be a, a potentially a chill effect for victims of the tabloid press who want to hold them accountable because i mean who in their right mind would now want to take on the sun the defence is so much worse than the original article. Um, it's a good point that you make because uh, inevitably when tabloid newspaper wins a case like this, uh, it never lets you forget it. Um, that said, I think chances are future claimants who have genuine libel claims are unlikely to be seriously deterred from taking them on. Um, the problem for Depp here is that he beat his wife and then sued the newspaper for saying so. If 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 he had not done it, he would have won. Um, so the lesson here is, if you're going to sue the newspapers for libel, you'd better be absolutely certain that you didn't do the thing that you've been accused of. Now, it's quite clear from looking at the facts of the case, as they've been found to be by Mr. Justice Nicol, that Depp has struggled for a very long time with addiction, um, both to alcohol and to narcotics. Um, I don't know what his state of mind is. It is possible that he genuinely did not think he had done the things that it was proven he'd done. When I read through the judgment, I'm afraid the overwhelming impression that, that you get from, uh, from the judge's findings is that for the most part, Depp's side of the story just does not make good sense. Um, it's not believable. And that's not something the judge even has to say in so many words. The judge 
just tells you the facts and you think, well, this, this is what Depp says happened and doesn't make sense. So maybe that's an indicator that his mental state was not of the level that, that he would have uh, wanted it to be. But no, I, 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 I I do hear the concern always about uh, tabloid newspapers bigging up victories and using them to beat people over the head with, but this one was just so egregious. Um, I don't think it sets a a precedent for anyone who didn't actually do what they've been accused of. But, I mean, I still wonder, the son didn't know that he did all these things when they printed the original article. They were printing it on rumours. And, you know, I've, I've fixed on this idea before and you've shut it down, but I'm coming back to it, is whether there should be some sort of caveat to the truth defence which disallows the tabloid press from, you know, essentially getting lucky. You know, the Sun had to do so much more research for this than they did the original article. And I wonder whether there's some sort of um, responsible journalism caveat you can put into a truth defense which means you don't you don't get away with um printing something and then proving it later you should have to know it's true when you print it well this is the you know the question whether it should be lawful to shoot first and ask questions later um i think my my broad response and we've 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 talked about this before the podcast um you and i anyway but this is this is common across English law. It's not peculiar to defamation. Um, Defence always has the opportunity, once a claim has been issued, to go and do a whole load of research and preparation for their case. Um, and that's true whether you're dealing with a defence in defamation or in privacy or in negligence or breach of contract or breach of fiduciary duty or nuisance, or any other cause of action that you care to name, um, defence will always go and conduct a whole load more research. Um, Were one to amend the law of defamation to put such a caveat on the truth defence, it would make defamation the outlier. Um, I think what you'd hear from the press, you know, on on a less legal note, is they would simply say that would put too great a chilling effect on their reporting. Necessarily, they take information from sources and they publish the information on trust that those sources uh, are telling them the truth. And a responsible journalist will seek um, confirmation from multiple sources before publishing. But assuming that that is what has been done, then that's always the full extent of practically possible investigation in most circumstances. Um, to require them to go as far for a, a story. You know, bear in mind that these newspapers publish multiple stories, hundreds of stories every day, to go as far for every story as they have to for a multi-million pound libel defence, I think they'll say is impractical. And I, I have a degree of sympathy with that argument. And you know I'm not one to have a degree of sympathy with the press usually. Um, but with that argument... <laughs> go as far as the research necessary for a defence in a court for every article, but just some semblance of checking 
And I just, I mean, I don't know whether this came out in the judgment, how much research the Sun had done prior to printing, but it's very unlikely that they did do a lot of research beyond the rumours that were flying around Hollywood in gossip channels that he had beaten Amber Heard. I think if we were talking about, I, mean, I think here what we're talking about really is, 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 is uh, the line to be drawn between a truth defence, which is a blunt instrument, and the responsible journalism defence, um, which is a much more nuanced instrument. Um, the old defence of um, responsible journalism under Reynolds, now Section 4 defence of responsible publication on a matter of public interest, um, that does involve journalists demonstrating that they took adequate steps to verify the material. But it has always been the case in English law that the truth defence, the justification defence as it used to be, was much more blunt and you could just get lucky. And the reason for that is that what matters is the reputation of the claimant. And this I think we can we can explore just by going back to the old term justification. The reason why the law, uh, why this doctrine used to be called justification rather than truth is that if the allegation were proven true, defendant would be justified introducing the reputation of the claimant because the claimant had a reputation they did not deserve. They had this reputation that was too good um, when set alongside uh, the things they had actually done. So by necessity, it becomes a blunt instrument because the aim of the defense of truth historically, has simply been to determine whether traducing someone's reputation is justified. Does Depp deserve to have the reputation of, as he painted himself, uh, you know, a, a southern gentleman, or did he, does he deserve to have the reputation of a wife beater? Well, the fact is he beat his wife, so he deserves the reputation of a wife beater. And whether the son knew that before they printed it or not, that is the reputation Depp deserves. Okay, I'll leave it there. <laughs> <laughs> I just... But it's a fun discussion because I, I hear you, and and the bit I hear is there seems to be uh, a, a mismatch between the standards to which we hold the quality of the journalism when you're dealing with a truth defence as opposed to a section four defence, and you know it, to what extent is that mismatch justifiable? I don't think that's a question that any law reformers have ever really engaged with around defamation. Um, and I suspect the reason for that is, as I've said, historically, uh, it's been by definition this blunt instrument. But um, it is an interesting point that you raise. Mm. And I think as well, I mean, there's there's a there's a mismatch to the examples you gave of the standard that you have in negligence when you're coming to a defence or something like that. Is it? it that no, very few other areas in society are as reckless as the tabloid press, time and time again. And so, in my mind it's justifiable to have an implementation above and beyond other aspects of the law for a research requirement, given that the entire point of the defence that they later come to rely on is truth. So you should know it's true when you write it, just as those who you know write contracts or something do so scrupulously in anticipation that any failure may result in litigation down the line. But I, I realise that it, it's a a point I've hashed out and been shut down multiple times by you, so I will leave it. 
Well, I don't mean to shut you down brutally, but it's an uh, but it's an interesting. It is an interesting point for discussion. Um, absolutely. Well, on the subject of tropes, um, because obviously there there has been discussion of the the uh, tropes levelled against Amber Heard, and tropes are also the subject of another defamation claim. This one has yet to actually be issued in court, but it's been threatened by a star of uh, Drag Race UK Crystal against the actor uh, and now outspoken political critic, it seems, Lawrence Fox. Um, And uh, this is a case that I uh, sat down the other day with Alex Antonio of Essex University to talk about. Hi, Alex. Hi, Tom. Thanks for having me. So Alex recently, uh, along with a colleague of his, wrote a uh, piece on the Inform blog. Um, And this is to do with a potential uh, libel claim. Um, One of the participants in Drag Race UK, known as Crystal, has announced uh, that she intends to bring a libel claim against the actor Lawrence Fox, who listeners will no doubt be aware of and uh, may remember from his having featured in earlier episodes, um, after he ended up uh, calling Crystal a paedophile on Twitter. Now, what had happened was this. Um, the same, the supermarket chain Sainsbury's had put a tweet up in which it expressed support for Black History Month. Lawrence Fox had put a tweet up in response to that, uh, deriding Sainsbury's for supporting Black History Month and accusing it of promoting racial segregation and discrimination. Um, Crystal had put her own tweet up, criticising Fox's tweet, in which she said, Imagine being this proud of being a racist, so cringe, total snowflake behaviour. And Fox then responded to Crystal's tweet by tweeting, says the paedophile. Now, Crystal has, uh, as I say, announced an intention to sue Fox for libel. This raises some interesting questions around Section 1 of the Defamation Act. Listeners will remember that's been the subject of discussion in a few of our podcasts in the last year or so. Um, But the Section 1 requirement uh, is that as well as being defamatory at common law, under the old common law tests, uh, a statement in order to be defamatory must also cause or be likely to cause serious reputational harm to the claimant. So the question is, does this statement uh, cause serious harm or is it likely to cause serious harm to Crystal's reputation? Alex, you've been taking a look at this. What are your thoughts? Well, I mean, if this case uh, eventually reaches the court, I think we may have um, an interesting uh, test case um, because I think it's the, 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 the sexuality or the identity of um, the, the claimant here needs or warrants careful consideration. Um, well, I mean, 
there are some early judicial opinions which suggest that some grave imputations um, uh, of serious harm will be so obvious that there won't be any need for evidence. But then, as you mentioned earlier, we've got now Section 1, and you know now it's been interpreted in a, in a new light by the Supreme Court. So we need, I mean, the, the, the inherent meaning of the words um, is not enough. We need now to have evidence, more concrete evidence, of the actual impact of those words um, on those to whom they were communicated. So I was... I was going to say, it seems to me that there are um, a couple of separate issues here, um, which we might delve into, which is, first of all, um, we have these uh, cases like the show in its early iteration in the High Court, um, where the courts have said, okay, there, there are some words that are so inherently damaging that we can infer serious harm. And one of the examples that's always given in the jurisprudence is the accusation of paedophilia. Right, right. So there's a question as to whether uh, simply the use of that word automatically makes the statement defamatory. And in the light of some subsequent case law, I think you're right to query that. The other point is whether... Um, the allegation takes on uh, a an extra degree of seriousness uh, in terms of its impact uh, for the claimant when it is leveled against a person from the LGBT community, because we know that That's accusations right. of paedophilia are a well-known and long-standing homophobic trope. Yeah. So perhaps we could look at those two 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 issues. Well, um, in in relation to the first issue, I think is the, is the one you mentioned about um, now. Okay, we we have some sort of a benchmark in terms of well, when someone is wrongly accused of being a pedophile or a terrorist, then this accusation, this imputation, is bound to have some sort of you know um, impact. Yeah. Um, I think here we've got, I mean, we, we, we have for the first time, I think, a, a case which squarely fits that example. And it's it will be interesting to see, you know, how obviously we will, it will be approached. But in light of recent case law, is this enough? So I would think that, you know, the, the courts will be looking for more concrete evidence as to, okay, what was that impact? Well, what was the actual impact? on those people to whom the statement was communicated. So there is a question there of how do we prove that now? Am I right in thinking that? Yeah, I think that's I think that's right, because now you have cases like Stocker and Stocker, um, which listeners may be familiar with, but it's a case in which um, uh, tweets on social media, this is the um, uh, defendant who, who um, accused the claimant of attempting to strangle her. Right. And um, the, the defense was uh, her defense was that you know, attempting to strangle didn't mean attempting to kill; it just mean, it meant attempting to put hands round throat. Um, and the court said, "Well, we have to take this in the context of it being social media, and people don't read it that closely." So I guess you know the extension of that, and might what might well be Fox's 
defense here um, is the nobody believes anything on social media defense. I don't know whether that's the Elon Musk defense or the Donald Trump defense, but it's possibly both. Yeah, I mean, indeed, the the Supreme Court has emphasized the importance of context. And, you know, there have been some cases in the past where both Facebook and Twitter um, were, you know, engaged. I mean, both those platforms were approached as being casual mediums, um, conversational mediums, uh, sorry, conversational media, casual media, um, to which a more impressionistic approach is more fitting and more appropriate. Yeah. So the, 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 the question perhaps is that, you know, is this, does that mean that ordinary readers now will consider provocative statements like controversy-seeking statements as mere abuse, uh, or they might think that you know this kind of language is expected in forums of this nature. Yes. So the, perhaps you know a following question will be: Would it mean that the harm suffered will be deemed less serious? Yes. Yeah, so there's sort of this. This. I mean, is it the way we start disappearing down um, down rabbit holes? Isn't it? Because there are two possible. Uh, versions of this social media type stalker and stalker defense there's the argument that nobody really takes it seriously because it's on social media and so we have to think about it in context and in passing you know how many people every day accuse people of you know you throw the word pedophile around on twitter i don't know but i imagine it's a lot um and so nobody really takes it very seriously on the and and the second argument is well there has for a very long time been an exception to common law defamation, which is the rule against vulgar abuse. Just to use an abusive term in the heat of argument um, is not considered defamatory. If I shout "you bastard" at someone, I don't. I'm not taken to mean you, know, you were born out of wedlock and should be shunned and avoided. We just take it as, uh, as 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 a bit of abuse. And that again, I, I know. Is is there an argument that? Uh, and it's an argument that, that Elon Musk did successfully run in his libel trial in California. But but I wonder whether it would even work here, uh, where you don't have a jury, which is, you know, is calling someone a pedophile these days merely abuse? Um, or, or is it more weighty than that? Yeah. But, well, I mean, obviously, you know, every, every single case will be, you know, will depend on its own facts. But in this particular one, what we do have is that the the claimant is, you know, has a, a, a specific identity. You know, the the the, the sexuality here must um, must receive some sort of special consideration. I would yes, say. it adds context, doesn't it? Because yeah, yeah. So you know, the, Fox's claim being targeted towards a member of the LGBT community, I would think now acquires a different meaning, an additional layer of meaning. And and then there might be an argument there as to whether this could have capacity to create more serious harm, because in this particular case, the statement alludes to, as you mentioned, the homophobic myth that conflates homosexuality with pedophilia, with child predation. So this is, I, I think this would be here a factor that couldn't be ignored. Yes. Though I wonder if Fox might argue that no right-thinking person 
no right-thinking reader would see this and think any less of Crystal because of her sexuality um, and her identity than they would from just the bare use of the, the word pedophile um, and, and kind of rely on the readers being reasonable where he was not. Um, because no doubt what he said is thoroughly unpleasant and upsetting, but he may well argue that nobody would genuinely think think less of Crestfall as a result. Well, I, I, I would question that because, again, if we are to take into, uh, into consideration context here, and then... You know, we we do live, I would think, in an age of mistrust. We've been, you know, we've seen the Jamie Sabu scandal. We've been through, I mean, we're still in the Me Too movement. Um, I think that, you know, all this have cultivated now an age of mistrust towards traditional media organizations, which means that social media nowadays have the power to challenge, let's say, the top-down information flow which means that ordinary users now might possibly attribute more importance to content on Twitter or Facebook, perhaps, than they are assumed to. Yes. So with this in mind, is there an argument to say, well, actually, the right-thinking members of the society, although you know they, they, they might not be perhaps, you know... Um, unduly suspicious, would such a statement take a different meaning in their minds considering the the the, the era we live in? Something it's going to be very interesting to follow. We'll see if this uh, case does find its way into uh, the court's if it does, we'll keep you up to date with it on the Media Law Podcast. For now, Alex Antonio, thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for listening. Moving away from defamation, then, just to quickly mention that the Markle case has been delayed uh, to autumn next year, so we won't have a um, trial or a judgment to bite into for a while now. And in California, there's also an interesting new proposition to amend data privacy laws. It's called Proposition 24. And um, it's, from what I can tell, essentially an American version of GDPR. It lets consumers tell businesses to limit their use of sensitive data, such as exact location, health information, race, religion, etc. Um, it also prohibits businesses from holding onto your data for longer than necessary and allowing governments to be able to fine businesses for violations. Tom, is there anything you have to comment on this? Or do you agree that it's a, a GDPR-esque amendment? Esque, yes, it's of that genus. Um, and this is obviously something that is becoming more common across the world uh, as uh, states become more familiar with the uh, importance of uh, protecting digital privacy. Um it's something that, generally speaking, privacy laws, California has for the last few years been uh, at the forefront of and it's been more advanced than other states in the US. Um, 
this one caught my eye, um, both because it was um, it was going to, uh, in essence, a referendum um, as, as a proposition being put to the electorate on uh, the same day as all the other elections going on in the US uh, yesterday, um, as we're recording this on the 4th uh, of, of November, um, um, but also because it, it was opposed by some normally very pro-privacy groups, including the American Civil Liberties Union. Um now, their main opposition to it comes from the fact that it appears, I haven't read the proposition in, in detail, um, but it appears to uh, permit um, companies to charge consumers higher prices if they opt out of um, data sharing. So whereas, you know, under GDPR, now all the websites that you go on have to ask you for your consent to store cookies and use your data and do this, that and the other. Um, we don't expect to, you know, the prices that we pay for those services to go up when we click no, as opposed to yes. Um, but this, um, this proposition 24 in California has been opposed by the American Civil Liberties Union on the basis that it, uh, uh, it may well lead to that practice, which they say would then be discriminatory against uh, and disadvantageous for uh, uh, less well-off people who would uh, be in uh, a vulnerable position uh, where they'd be less likely to be able to afford to pay the higher prices and thus would be railroaded into sharing their data in circumstances where they may not want to. Nonetheless, it looks like the proposition is going to uh, pass. I'm, like the rest of the world, not going to uh, sit here and predict with any certainty the outcome of uh, electoral exercises in the United States this month. Um, but uh, as we record this at nearly five o'clock on uh, Wednesday, the 4th of November, uh, with 76.7% of the vote in, in California on the proposition, the yes vote is uh, uh, currently at 55.9% to 44% no. So it looks like the proposition is, is going to pass. Will it have implications outside of California? So a lot of the big tech companies are based in California, so if they're subject to this law, does that extend outside the state boundary? That's a very good question. I don't actually know, um, but I suspect that in practice, um, the big digital companies will operate in the same way inside and outside the state of California. Um, I'm sure there are technological ways to ensure that a website does some does things one way in California and another way in Nevada or Arizona or wherever. Um, but in practice, I, I would have thought that whatever um, processes these companies decide to adopt, they'll apply fairly universally, at least within the United States, would be my expectation. But it's a good question. And I cannot give you a definite answer on it. Well, if it passes, we can come back to it. Yes, we'll, do more we'll find somebody who knows a bit more about it than I. Wonderful. Um, okay, well, I think that's all we've got time for today. Thank you very much for joining me, Tom. Thanks, Colette. Always a pleasure. 
And um, as ever, please follow us on Twitter at Media Law Podcast. And we will see you again soon. Thank you very much. Bye.